<laughs> Thank you. We begin with our second reading for today, which comes to us from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 18, verses 21 through 35. So let's listen for God's word today. Then Peter came and said to him, Lord, if another member of the church sins against me, how often should I forgive? As many as seven times? Jesus said to him, not seven times, but I tell you, 77 times. For this reason, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wishes to settle accounts with his slaves. When he began the reckoning, one who owed him 10,000 talents was brought to him. And as he could not pay, his Lord ordered him to be sold, together with his wife and children and all his possessions and payments to be made. So the slave fell on his knees before him, saying, Have patience with me, and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the Lord of that slave released him and forgave the debt. But that same slave, as he went out, came upon one of his fellow slaves who owed him a hundred denarii. And seizing him by the throat, he said, Pay what you owe. Then his fellow slave fell down and pleaded with him, Have patience with me, and I will pay you. But the man refused. Then he went and threw him into prison until he would pay the debt. When his fellow slaves saw what had happened, they were greatly distressed, and they went and reported to their Lord all that had taken place. Then his Lord summoned him and said to him, You wicked slave! I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. Should you not have mercy, have had mercy on your fellow slave as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his Lord handed him over to be tortured until he would pay his entire debt. So, said Jesus, my heavenly Father will also do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother or sister from your heart. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Lord, sometimes your word is hard to hear. Yet open us still to know what it is you would have to say to us because we trust you and we know you and we know your love and your justice. We pray this in your name. Amen. Amen. So thank you for the welcome. It is wonderful to be back among you all again. Please know that you were in my prayers daily. And I give thanks for my colleagues and for so many of you who ably stepped up to cover so much during my sabbatical. What a joy it is to return and learn about all that God has done among you this summer. As you may have heard, much, though not all, of my sabbatical was spent on a long journey with Bill and my two girls. Over eight weeks, the four of us traveled from Northern Ireland to Switzerland 
with many stops along the way. We visited 16 cities, rode on countless trains, and a handful of ferries. We spent weeks living in intentional communities in Northern Ireland, Scotland, and France. I brought greetings from you all to the Evangelical Lutheran Church in Geneva when I preached there one Sunday evening. And all along the way, we had the opportunity to renew existing friendships and to make new ones that we hope to sustain. Of course, we also made use of at least one playground in every place, and we ate more chocolate and bread than we'd care to admit. It was quite a journey. And as you may have experienced in your own travels with family or friends, sometimes patients ran quite low. It was hot. We were tired. The food wasn't exactly as we expected. The distance was longer than promised. We had ample opportunity this summer to practice the art of forgiveness. For the times parents lost their temper, the times kids did the same, and the many misunderstandings along the way. It's a serious thing, though, forgiveness. Jesus wanted his disciples to be clear about that, hence our story this morning. It's quite a shocker especially when we slow down to examine the details. It's a little absurd, actually. Remember, Jesus tells parables to teach his disciples about the heart of God and to help them understand what it looks like to draw near to that heart. Often he does that by employing the art of absurdity in order to get us to pay attention. So, In this case, he's kicked off by a question from Peter, a question about forgiveness. And we get the feeling that Peter is proud of himself. What do you say, Jesus? Should I forgive my fellow disciple seven times? Not once, but seven. After a pause, Jesus says, well, actually, I'd say 77. And so he launches into a story about a slave who owes his Lord 10,000 talents. Friends, let me tell you, this was more money than was in circulation in the entirety of Judea in a year. It is an absurd amount of money. It's roughly 100 million days wages for the average worker. It was a sum that would have had those who were listening at the time chuckling at the impossibility of it. And the Lord let it get that bad? The slave is called up and asked to repay this outrageous sum, which of course he could not. So the Lord goes to sell him and his family, therefore losing more money, The man falls to his knees, begs for patience with promises to repay it all as if he could. And get this, the Lord just forgave his debt. 
The crowd chuckles again. That's ridiculous. But Jesus goes on. So the slave goes out, much lighter on his feet, of course, and he encounters a fellow slave who owes him 100 denarii. Again, context. It's a paltry sum in comparison to the first. Again, equal to roughly 100 days' wages. Demanding to be paid, the fellow slave falls down just as his collector had done, begging word for word the same patience and making the same promises. And get this, says Jesus, the one who had just been forgiven, he's not having it. He throws the other into prison until the debt is paid. But how does one work to pay a financial debt while they're in prison? Then, as now, it's impossible. And so the man has just been given a life sentence. Ooh, the crowd murmurs. That's ridiculous. Who does he think he is? Well, continues Jesus, the extravagantly forgiven man is seen in all of his retributive glory, and his Lord learns of this ungrace. He's called again to stand witness, and this time his fate is sealed. He must repay in full, as if he could, and until he does, he is tortured. The crowd is looking around now, uncomfortable. So Jesus finishes it out with the kicker. So he says, will my Father in heaven do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother and sister from your heart. Silence. That last part is a kicker. Enough that it almost throws me off the point he's trying to make. But remember, this is a parable. It is not a literal description of a God who tortures and demands. It is a story to help us know what matters to God. And the point is this. Forgiveness matters to God. Forgiveness is a central act of what it means to follow God. It is not the first time that Jesus has talked about this. Every single week we pray, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors or in various different ways that that is said, because this is how Jesus taught his disciples to pray. Earlier in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus described making amends before going into the temple. And here, just before Peter's question, Jesus gave step-by-step -step instructions for the accountability we owe one another in the church. Jesus is serious about forgiveness, because it is a defining act of our God, and one Jesus will go on to enact on the cross, an act in itself that was as incredible as it was absurd. Forgiveness on that level, on the 10,000 talent level, the grace of God level, catches our attention for the mind-bending nature of it. But then, again, so can forgiveness at the 100 denarii level, the vulnerable human level, 
because even still, sometimes it feels absurd. There are situations, I imagine, in our own lives, in the lives of our families, in stories, certainly, that we have heard and those we have experienced. There are acts of institutions and governments where jumping to forgiveness is outright harmful. It is so fraught and such long work, so caught up by the certainty of what it should look like or should not, that it's a wonder we don't just leave it alone. But Jesus says we can't. The Forgiveness Project stakes a claim that to talk about forgiveness is a countercultural act. Yet, it is critical to our well-being as individuals and as a society. The founder of the Forgiveness Project, Maria Cantacuzino, began this work as a personal project in response to the invasion of Iraq in 2003. She was certain at the time that to act with revenge following the violence of 9-11 would only entrench enmity and perpetuate cycles of violence. As a journalist by training, she wanted to bring more stories into the world that witnessed to a counter-narrative. Stories where people did not seek revenge or retaliation, but rather transformed their aggression into a force for peace. That first year, they collected 26 stories from victims and perpetrators, which became an exhibition called The F Word. The success of that first exhibition launched the founding of the Forgiveness Project, which continues to center real stories from individuals from around the world that help us to explore how practices of forgiveness, reconciliation, and restorative justice can impact positively on people's lives. Canta Casino is clear-eyed about the complexities of it, how divisive it can be. People have assumptions about forgiveness, she says, that it's weak, that it's about condoning and excusing, that it lets people off the hook, or that it's some incredible magic key to serenity that will fix everything. And still, she is committed to the value of our attempts, in our practice, even in our acknowledging of the need. Yes, forgiveness is messy. It's rarely what we expect or hope, but in the 20 years she has been doing this, she has also seen it as a healing balm. When asked to define forgiveness at this point in her work, Canta Casino is hesitant to pin it down. She says, I've landed on one unsatisfactory kind of definition. Forgiveness is making peace with things or people that we cannot change. And the reason why that is insufficient is that it doesn't bring in the most important part of forgiveness, which is that it requires a degree of compassion and empathy for the person who's hurt you. So it's different from letting go. It's more than acceptance. She cites one academic who's written a lot about forgiveness, once saying, 
that he's abandoned all definitions, and he just uses the word freedom now. Freedom. Now maybe we can understand even better why forgiveness is central to the heart of God. God who is always moving her people from bondage to freedom. I witness the centrality of this work on forgiveness towards freedom as a key to the mission of the, each Christian community we stayed with this summer, each of which has deep commitments to works of reconciliation. Indeed, the Forgiveness Project is a secular organization, but I learned about it through the Corimila community on the north coast of Northern Ireland. The community is known for its long and careful work to bring together individuals from disparate sides of the decades-long, some might say centuries-long, conflict there. Corimila invites both victims and perpetrators to dialogue and to encounter one another as a way of making inroads towards peace, reconciliation, and sometimes forgiveness. The community's work is credited with being a significant part of the peace process there, both initially and as it is sustained. Clearly, they know that forgiveness is serious business. It is not something that can be demanded nor expected, and yet the people of God have a call to make it a central practice of our lives. Communities like Corimila embrace this absurdity because Jesus says that we as the church witness best to who God is when we respond to God's 10,000 talent level forgiveness with our 100 denarii level attempts. To say that a different way, we best receive God's forgiveness of us when we work on practicing it with each other. In fact, God's forgiveness frees us for this practice and is what the world needs from us. To do our best to embody a countercultural story that it is not violence that saves us, but empathy, not retribution, but compassion, not fear in isolation, but accountability and trust in community. This is long work, like much of what we have to do. It's personal and communal, inward and outward. Yet to tell this counter-narrative is to know God and God's kingdom more fully. It is to know freedom. It is to do our part in that other piece of the prayer that we say each week. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And for this work, we need courage. So I offer this prayer that comes from the Corimila community, a prayer for courage, for the work of living the counter-narrative of discipleship. Let us pray. Courage comes from the heart, and we are always welcomed by God, the heart of all being. We bear witness to our faith, knowing that we are called to live lives of courage, 
love and reconciliation in the ordinary and extraordinary moments each day. We bear witness, too, to our failures and our complicity in the fractures of our world. So may we be courageous today. May we learn today. May we love today. Amen.